From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks. Highlights from our weekday discussions on race, education, and underserved communities. Today, we have two interviews on health. So what are the social determinants of health? In simplest terms, it's what's happening in a person's life that is prohibiting them from being their healthiest self. The vast majority of what really allows someone to be healthy is based on things like what zip code were they born into, uh, what kind of education do they have, uh, the issue of racism, uh, poverty. Also today, mentorship and entrepreneurship and confidence. Attending a historical black college and university, I was always told I could do it. I have this thing, like I say, like I'm not a, uh, a carrier of my wounds. Like I am a carrier of wisdom. We begin with Dr. Myron Glick, MD, the CEO of Jericho Road Community Health Center, talking with Dave Debo about their work with refugees, asylum seekers, and other underserved groups seeking health care and shelter. You know, I've had a front row seat over the last 25 years to see how our healthcare system treats folks who maybe don't have health insurance, maybe lived in situations in our life where they just didn't have access. If you look at what health means, about 10% of someone's ability to be healthy is based on the medical care that I provide. Another 10% is probably our genetics. And then there's a whole 80% based on things like what zip code were they born into? Uh, what kind of education do they have? Uh, the issue of racism, uh, segregation by zip code, uh, poverty. These determinants dramatically affect uh, the ability of a child to grow up and be truly healthy. Make that concrete for me. What kind of issues does someone have that keeps them from being healthy long term? You know, I deliver babies. When I see a baby for the first time, they all look the same to me. Uh, they all look generally healthy. Like you think that they're going to grow up and be fine. But then I'm also a family doctor. I, I see those children for their well child visits. I, I watch them grow up. And what I realize is that if you grow up in a home where maybe you don't have access to food every night, or you go to a school where things are really stressed, or you live in a community where violence is, is too common, that all affects your ability to have opportunities which put you in a place to succeed. How does that play out specifically for new Americans, refugees and immigrants? You know, one of the things that I tell folks is that when every re child as a refugee comes to Jericho Road for the first time, we do a lead test. And then we repeat that lead test in six months. And what we find invariably is that the lead test tends to go up after six months of being in Buffalo. What that reflects is that we put refugees into housing that is old, it's beat up, and it's the cheapest we can find in this area. And that housing stock isn't good enough. It's not good enough for anyone. And so we see lead levels rise in new refugees' uh, children. Uh, that's just a small example of how poverty 
and access to good housing affects someone's health. And that's universal for anyone who's in substandard housing, you would say? Yes, I would say that. Mm. What do you do about it? As someone's lead level lot rises, do you just take them out of that situation? I mean, it, it depends. They're, they're, we monitor them. If it gets too high, we can do some medical treatment of it. And then, yes, you press for a better housing place or the health department comes in and fixes up the problem. You push the landlord to fix the house. The bigger picture is it reflects that we agree to leave, live in a world where some of us have access to the best housing and some of us have access to uh, the worst housing, and we, we think that's okay. So you're a doctor who takes care of individual patients, but you see the mission as being bigger, taking care of the community needs or these social determinants again. We want to see people well cared for, and we want to see community individuals, families, and communities transformed. And we realize, we recognize that to do that, we have to go beyond um, providing just basic health care. We have to be part of the solution to see uh, our communities transformed. One of those ways is through something called Vive La Casa. You saw a need for housing, again, mostly for immigrants and refugees. So Jericho Road set up this, tell me, shelter basically, right? Well, I wouldn't, Dave, I wouldn't want to take credit for the beginning of Vive. Vive was, Vive La Casa was started almost 40 years ago by some Catholic nuns to provide a shelter for folks who were passing through Buffalo on their way to Canada to get asylum in Canada. We were providing some health care for the folks in that shelter. And about seven or eight years ago, I think it was in 2015, um, the folks at Vive, the board came to Jericho Road, came to me and said, we're struggling. This is a, a challenging endeavor. Would Jericho Road decide, uh, agree to take Vive over? And so for the last seven years, uh, we have managed Vive as a program of Jericho Road. And it fits the overall mission. Yes, I think Vive performs a very integral and important and essential task for our city, which is to provide asylum seekers who are coming through here with no support, uh, to provide them with a safe place, shelter, uh, legal aid, health care, uh, while they are in this transition. Explain to me who that is and how that happens. Someone arrives in Buffalo from where, steps off a bus and needs a place to live? How, how does that all happen? I think most typical now is that folks are coming from places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Venezuela, from Colombia, from Honduras, from Afghanistan, from Ukraine, uh, from Haiti. And they are forced out of their home country. They're basically fleeing for their lives alone or with their families. And their journey is a long one. It often involves going by airplane or by ship uh, to a country like Brazil and then literally walking from Brazil or one of those um, Latin American countries across a very difficult journey between uh, Colombia and Panama and then up through Central America. It might take six months for that journey. A lot of challenges, a danger, people die, uh, people are raped. We see all kinds of, of horrible stuff that happens. When they get to the southern border um, and cross, then they're often arrested and put in detention by our government. And then eventually when they're released, uh, they are 
they find out about Vive uh, and and they head to Buffalo. And, you know, that's probably the most normal story. There's lots of other ways that people connect with us, but it usually now is a long journey that involves crossing our southern border. And I've even heard that uh, the folks that are coming up from the southern border are not necessarily coming from those countries. Someone wants to get out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They can't come directly to the United States. Right. So they then leave whatever place they're leaving, Mm -hmm. go to South America, and after that journey, Mm -hmm. take the six-month journey up to Buffalo. Yes. I, I recently interviewed a young man who his journey from Eritrea to Buffalo took 16 years. He was imprisoned five times. I mean, he barely escaped with his life. And now he's here in Buffalo and is in school and got married and, and is a productive citizen of our community. But he his journey is was incredible. And, and we see people like that every day. Tell me about the actual facility. Vive on Wyoming Avenue houses how many? And what are your expansion plans? Because I know we want to talk sure. about that. So it's a, it's a pretty beat-up building. used to be a school building. It's about 20,000 square feet, dormitory-style um, living. We've tried to do the best we can with a pretty beat-up Buffalo building. Every night we house about 120 people, mm. and that includes uh, many children, families, and single folks. Uh, we provide food, shelter, legal help, health care, all that stuff. We are... We've bought 1500 Main Street, uh, the old Bristol home, beautiful facility, about 50,000 square feet. And we're in the middle of a capital campaign to raise $6 million to not only complete the purchase, which we have, but also to completely renovate that space into a very inviting um, uh, home for asylum seekers. Another one of the programs that you, you offer uh, isn't necessarily here in Buffalo. You have cell health centers overseas to help folks that end up starting here and going back to their mm-hmm. home countries. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, one of the incredible things personally for me is that I grew up thinking I was going to be a medical missionary doctor in another country. That's why I went into medicine. And then during medical school here, I realized how the poor were treated and decided to stay in Buffalo and start Jericho Road. Never on the west side of Buffalo um, with folks that were on Medicaid or uninsured didn't, before the refugees started to pour in. And what happened is, amazingly, is uh, we've been involved in refugee care all these years, built relationships with folks, and now in some s- situations have followed them back to their home countries and are helping them operate health centers in Sierra Leone, Congo, and Nepal. It's an amazing privilege. And one of them is in Goma, Mm -hmm. in the Congo. Yeah, the National Geographic in 2013 said that Goma was the most dangerous city to live in. It's surrounded by these volcanoes that periodically pop off. Uh, There's this 30-year war that's killed millions and millions of people in eastern Congo and is still ongoing. It's a geopolitical mess. We in the West supported in some ways by our insatiable desire for these minerals from this uh, place. In that city, we now run the third largest hospital 
We deliver over 150 babies a month, and it's all done by Congolese staff and doctors. And it's an incredible privilege caring for the poorest of the poor in one of the world's most dangerous cities. Dr. Myron Glick is here, CEO, medical director. Are you the, the, the top doctor at Jericho Road as well? I am a family physician and the CEO of Jericho Road. I have a chief medical officer who works alongside me. I totally believe that being a family doctor is the most amazing thing in the world. I get a chance to you know, take care of uh, someone when they're pregnant, deliver the baby, take care of this child as they grow up. I help some days I help someone be born and I help someone die. Uh, we love family doctors, that motto at Jericho Road, that's the basis of our motto, and we hope to inspire many, many more people to become fam- family doctors in the future. You were telling me that uh, about 50% of your clients, if we can call them that, are, are non-English speakers? Yeah, I mean, the Community Health Center model was started in the 1960s as this radical movement to bring excellent health care to to um, you know, stress communities, and we were fortunate ten years ago to become a federally qualified community health center. It's huge in our development and our growth. We it's allowed us to expand dramatically, and we today serve about fifty percent of the population of, of our patients are came as refugees, and about fifty percent grew up here in Buffalo and just need good health care. And that includes about nine hundred families that live in the same zip code as the top shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, when that happened, we, we, we checked our database and realized that we serve over 900 families on the Jefferson Avenue, uh, close to the tops. Uh, that shooting affected our staff, affected our patients, was personal, and has been uh, motivating to us to do everything we can to try to create a different world so that something like that doesn't happen again. Other than the attention that has now been given to things like social determinants of health, what changed after the shooting? Dave, I wish I could tell you that everything's changed. I don't know that anything is completely changed. I mean, we still live in a country where racism is, you know, the effects of 400 years of racism are still in our face every day. And it's going to take a lot longer to see real change happen. So, I mean, it's great that there's attention now being placed. But why was there only one grocery store in that whole community? Why? We have to look at why this happened, be willing to accept responsibility, and then make systemic change that goes much deeper than just sending some money and building some new buildings. I knew we would eventually get there. How do you even start to address systemic change? I guess I would focus on what I know best, which is healthcare. What we see in healthcare is that there's these deep racial health disparities. Black folks are much more likely to die young, to die from diseases like diabetes and hypertension and stroke and even COVID. And I absolutely believe that if we as a healthcare you know, system as we as a nation would invest in some real tangible ways, make sure that the workforce reflects the diversity, make sure that we invest in programs that we know work. I believe that within a generation, health disparities would no longer exist. Like, I really believe that. It's, it's, it's about intention and money 
and resources to provide equity. But the the lack of resources stems from the way people think, no? I, I don't see lack of resources. I see lack of overall in our nation. I see that the resources aren't distributed equitably. So how do we how do we make decisions to distribute resources equitably? And I guess the, the point I'm trying to raise, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not the proper argument, mm-hmm. that that lack of equity is because of the way we think. Do we need to change that in order to change that? Sure. And, and how? <laughs> we only have five minutes left. How do we do that? <laughs> I, you know... I'm committed to push my organization, Jericho Road, to put its resources where it makes the most difference with regards to equity. I think the city of Buffalo needs to do that. I think our county needs to do that. Our state needs to do that. And our nation needs to do that. To me, it's a matter of leadership. We need folks in leadership who are willing to think about equity as the highest value. Dr. Myron Glick is the CEO of Jericho Road Community Health Center. Part of what he was talking about there is the same thing they deal with at the Buffalo Federation of Neighborhood Centers. Their executive director is Chandra Redfern. Simply stated, we work to provide innovative solutions that address the social determinants of health. So what are the social determinants of health? In simplest terms, it's what's happening in a person's life that is prohibiting them from being their healthiest self, from accessing physical or mental health treatment. There are a lot of incidences where where you live determines, there's the word again, social determinants of health. Absolutely. So we know that there are areas, right, such as uh, the east side of Buffalo, that, you know, there are even more challenges because of where you live, because of your socioeconomic status, because of the color of your skin that interfere with your ability to be well, right? And so people, you know, they, they're automatically, I think, coming into life sometimes with, you know, the deck stacked against them. Part of what care managers do is they say, okay, we know that there are these issues, but let's take it one step at a time and talk to us about what your goals are. What is it that you'd like to do? And, you know, sometimes the goals are very small for people. You know, sometimes it's, you know, I want to feel comfortable in my home. And then the uh, care manager is looking at, okay, what what's going to make that happen? And when you start really digging in, you'll find out there's a lot of other issues. So, for example, we may have had someone that maybe they were living someplace and they didn't feel comfortable where they were living. So they may work with that person to say, okay, let's figure out how we can address this housing situation, something like that. It may be that they've had an experience that has... Um, left them being traumatized and they're dealing with some PTSD. Okay, so let's talk about where you may be able to get some counseling for that. Um, And then they're going to work with that counselor to learn what are the coping skills that they're talking to that person with so that when life happens and that person calls the care manager, they know what they've been learning in their therapy sessions. So it's really a holistic thing, right? You have to deal with every aspect of a person's life. Is there a theme as these people come to you and say, I have a problem that needs to be fixed? And I imagine I've just simplified it because they probably don't say it that way. Right. Is there one? 
problem that keeps recurring all the time? People don't have enough money, right? They don't, they're not able to make ends meet. They're not able to take care of their families, themselves. And that creates a lot of stress for individuals, right? Some of them are working and they still cannot make ends meet. So we do hear that theme a lot. We see it a lot. And the other piece is that people are somewhat apprehensive about going to the doctor um, or seeing a counselor. And so we have to do a lot of work with them. So someone may walk through our door and we may say, okay, they're dealing with some things and we want them to see someone, but they're not going to do it right away. Mm. So we have to develop a relationship with them, really get to know them, figure out, you know, what do you want to work on first? And what we have found is that at some point people say, okay, you know, now I'm ready to do this or that. I can picture the reluctance to engage with a doctor as being a constant. But what about the other one? Uh, Poverty. Is there a trend line? Are we seeing it get better, get worse? So I, I think from where we stand, we've seen the needs increase. Things have not necessarily gotten better for the people that we service. So we see an increase in the need for our food pantry. We've seen an increase in people needing utility assistance because, you know, the heating bills, electric bills are going up. We see that the cost of food is going up. You know, people are, you know, spending $100 maybe if they have that, right? And they leave with one bag. And that's not going to help them feed their family of four people, for the month. Also, when we look at the population that we service, transportation is an issue. Mm-hmm. So it's getting to the places that they need to get to. So if you can only shop at, say, a corner store. You will take people to the yes. Whole Foods in Amherst or the Trader Joe's. Mm-hmm. You will drive people wherever they need to go, Southgate Plaza, West Seneca, because it's a different kind of grocery store. Right. And so they do have shopping trips. Um, primarily our seniors use them, and they go to the first-rung uh, suburbs. So there's uh, more of a variety in what people can select from, and, and they appreciate that. And I think, obviously, the discussion about Tops being just the one grocery store for the east side has been spotlighted and focused on even more since May 14th. Um, But it also sounds like this is a problem, as many of them are, that pre-existed. And you are someone that's in the community and you've worked on a lot of these pre-existing problems. What's changed or what has been exacerbated by May 14th? So um, what, what you have is you have people that are, have been re-traumatized. You have people that are traumatized. Um, you know, one of the things we've also seen is the increase um, in the fear among our youth and our young people. And I think a lot of times when things like this happen, we, we sometimes forget about the young people. But, you know, we have young people that they just... They're not certain of what the future holds. I mean, they already were dealing with issues prior to this. But, you know, they've said, well, you know, we don't understand. You know, people were minding their business in a store and someone came and did that. And why did that happen? And then there's a set of young people that said, well, you know, I thought you all were supposed to make this a better place for us to live. Mm. And so, you know, what's going on? Wow. How do you answer that one? That's a hard one to answer. Amen. Yeah. That's a hard one to answer. You know, I... I always try to talk to them and our staff try to talk to them about, you know what, we have to have hope that there is something better. And we each have to do our piece, right, to help 
make our community a better place. And so we help them explore, like, what is their contribution going to be to community? And for some of them, that helps them say, okay, I I can control what I put out. Um, but we, you know, we've had to refer a lot of our young people to counseling services. We um, have hosted uh, groups for our young people so that they can just talk about how they feel and, and what they think and what's going on. And um, I think for me, that was really shocking to see that response um, amongst young people. We we knew there was a response amongst our seniors. A lot of them are still um, very hesitant to go out. Um, it helps that, you know, we have staff that'll go with them for shopping trips and things of like that, but still very hesitant. But the young people, I think, was very surprising for us. Your programs do something interesting, or at least express it, Chandra, in an interesting way. Um, in terms of risky behavior, that your youth programs are designed to kind of teach a, uh, teach a youth right and wrong, but with a focus on preventing them from doing stupid stuff. So we have uh, one of the programs we have for youth is our comprehensive adolescent pre- pregnancy prevention services, right? Known as CAP. Okay. And so CAP is a preventative model, and the whole goal is to reduce those. Uh, risky behaviors that youth tend to engage in to help prevent um, pregnancy, HIV, um, AIDS, HIV, AIDS, STIs, STDs, yeah, all, things, all of those things, okay. right? And so, you know, we we provide that education, uh, the education on reproduction and, and those things, obviously. But what we found is that it's really dealing with the character education piece. So it's giving young people... Um, the tools that they need, right, to to live and to grow. So a lot of the young people we work with, um, they, they come from some, you know, serious backgrounds, um, you know, challenging backgrounds. And I think just being a young person today is challenging in and of itself. Um, and so, you know, it's how do, how do I deal with conflict? How do I deal with stress? You know, what does it mean to be a good citizen? You know, um, why is it important for me to also take care of my physical health? All of these different things, you know, how do I budget? You know, um, how do I go for a job interview? All of these skills that at some point in all of our lives, like we, we've learned them, right? And so we found if, if we can engage them teach them some of these things earlier on, then it interferes with them uh, participating in more risky behaviors, right? Because if I have an after-school job or something, then I'm not maybe just hanging out after school, right? right? But I need the skills in order to get that job. And um, one of the things we have, we have a uh, summer employment program where we employ um, kids over the summer and they learn job skills. So um, we try to take a a different approach to how we're getting the information out. We do use an evidence-based curriculum that the team uses that, um, but it's all about developing character in the young person. This is Buffalo What's Next producer picks. Each weekday on WBFO, we talk about issues brought to light in the wake of the May 14th massacre on Jefferson Avenue when a racist gunman killed 10 people just because they were black. Each day, we look at what is in place that keeps us from seeing our shared humanity and reaching our potential. And that brings us to Tiffany Lewis and her Confident Girls Mentoring Program. She talked last month with Jay Moran. You're dealing with some young 
ladies who have experienced trauma. How wide-ranging does that come? So Confident Girl Mentoring is a national brand, so we just don't deal with um, young girls from our inner city. We actually um, empower young girls from North Carolina, from Memphis, Tennessee, Niagara Falls. So it's really a national brand that really promotes and provides exceptional services, uh, trauma healing services to our young ladies. How important is that mentoring opportunity, especially, like you said, for young black and brown girls here? So I would say that um, our young girls, when we're talking about and our inner city communities, um, they're faced with far more challenges than maybe we did when we were growing up. So the importance of having a confident girl mentoring organization, it not just empowers, but it also instills a greater sense of hope, a greater sense of purpose, and just a greater sense of higher self-esteem, awareness, and to how they can be when they are um, adults. So... Your origin story for creating this is really remarkable. I, I, could you share it with our audience, please? Yes. So Confident Girl Mentoring, um, the journey began about five years ago from a conversation that I had with then a 12-year-old girl. Uh, she was so brave to share with me her personal experiences um, dealing with um, sexual abuse mm. um, and some traumas that she had been dealing with. And then at that point, I realized that as I was talking to that young girl, I saw myself in her, mm. knowing that, wow, I wish that I could be like her when I was 12 and how she was so brave to come to a complete stranger and share her experiences. And um, it was about 45 minutes. I drove home in tears like, wow, because after having that conversation with her, she said these words. She said, I need you to come back. She didn't say, I wanted you to come back. She said, I need you to come back. And for me, that was a call for action. And so I went home and I sat at my kitchen table like, what can I do? And from my kitchen table birthed Confident Girl Mentoring, which is now an organization that really helps deal with the traumas that our young girls are facing and not to mention that of the mentors that are selected, there's a shortage of black mentors to help mentor these black and brown kids. How important is that? Like you said, you, you don't always necessarily deal with just inner city kids and not always uh, young ladies of color, but turn it around. How important is it, though, for a, a young lady of color to look across and see somebody like themselves. Oh, it just also, it gives them a heightened sense of self-worth and a heightened sense of confidence too. Because when you see someone that you think, oh, wow, she made it, you know, that can give you the confidence to say, oh, I can make it too. You know, especially when you're faced with real issues. I have real life experience. So when I'm engaging with our young people, it actually opens up a sense of trust for our young girls to say, wait a minute, she went through what I went through. So maybe I can open up to her. And it is interesting how you refer to your experience, some troubling experiences that you had when you were younger, but you don't look at it as some baggage that you're carrying forward. Well, that's true. Like I feel like I have this thing. Like I say, like I'm not a 
uh, a carrier of my wounds. Like I am a carrier of wisdom and I'm able to take my experiences and turn them into positive lessons, not just for myself, but also for our young people. Like I choose to live in a place of peace and love and harmony where it may take a younger person longer to get to where I am. It didn't happen overnight, but I do know that my purpose is to heal, to inspire and to connect our next generation of young people. Can you talk a little bit about growing up in the city of Buffalo, what it was like for you? Mm-hmm. So um, I grew up in uh, the what's called the Cold Spring area, mm-hmm. which is where um, the 514 mass shooting occurred um, to a single mom. You know, my mom, she did such an amazing job with myself and my brother who just recently passed away about a year ago for Sorry. sickle cell disease. It's fine. And uh, she was an educator and she didn't play. Like, <laughs> like she I remember like some like my punishments were like we had to write essays and things and she would literally red line like my papers and like now I really admire that because she just wanted the best for us with little that she had she was able to be a role model for me and for my brother. Yeah, well, um, my wife and I always, often, <laughs> often talk when we had our two kids. We couldn't, A, possibly think of having one more. And B, how it would be to try to do this by yourself to take care of two kids. And so uh, in that regard, I mean, you, you understood, I guess, and probably, like you said, that wisdom that you're bringing forward. You understand that what might be missing in some of these young ladies' lives. Right, absolutely. Um, a lot of it is hope. We teach our kids, oh, okay, well, you have to have confidence, you have to have confidence. But what about hope? You know, that's that's something that if we're thinking about a healed and thriving community, our kids also need hope, you know, and um, purpose and a sense of belonging. And so at Confident Girl Mentoring, we created those spaces, those safe spaces for our young kids to have all those things, hope, healing, and also a sense of connected, uh, excuse me, a sense of connectedness um, for them to heal and thrive. We're with uh, Tiffany Lewis from uh, Confident Girl Mentoring uh, this morning. So we're, we're, we're visiting your, your place at uh, the Arthur Center. Talk about the, the type of environment you try to create mm. for these young ladies. Yes, so absolutely. So Confident Girl Mentoring is a safe place for healing and transformation. In my office, um, there's a uh, a small healing space, which we're, we're trying to grow. And what I do is I don't like to literally take kids and kids to time out. We send them to a place of peace. And so in my space, I give them like a remote. And on the remote, there's like LED lights that's all across my office. And they turn the light to whatever mood that they're feeling, okay. whether it's red, green. I'm still trying to figure out orange. <laughs> but um, that lets me know where they are. And so I have these big oversized pillows that the kids can grab. And when they come into that healing space, there's five questions that the kids are asked. One, like, um, how are you feeling today? What do you need? What services can, can, you know, can we offer you? And sometimes they talk and sometimes they don't, which is okay because we force our kids to talk too much where 
sometimes they just want us to listen. And so they grab a big jumbo size, oversized pillow, and depending on what mood they're in, we have a real conversation. Um, as a trauma trainer, you know, I'm educated on how to have those uncomfortable conversations with our young people to provide them with a place of healing where they can get to where they need to be. Those uncomfortable conversations, are, are there cues that you're picking up on? How, how do you know when to prod and when to back off a little bit? My thing is when kids trust you, kids share. I don't prod. They just talk because they feel a sense of, hey, I can trust her. Or there's something that may be uncomfortable. And instead of asking certain questions like, you know, what's wrong? It's more so, what can I help you with? And once you say those things, it kind of gets them on the edge like, oh, okay, well, maybe she's not trying to prod. Maybe she's really just trying to help. And that's the narrative that we want to shift to when we're having open conversations and communications with our young people. It might be a little difficult to, to gauge this, but I'll, 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 I'll put it out there. You know, you'd mentioned about the, that presence of the of the phone and the internet and things like that and those types of things that are, I guess aren't necessarily all that peaceful. But what about for young ladies, young ladies of color in the city? Are there other things that are breaking that peace that are troubling them? Do you find, I don't want to say generalities, but there are some themes that you keep encountering? Um, when you're talking about... When you, when, again, you know, you're trying to make a peaceful place, build some trust. We know that you know, the world is a crazy place, but what about their worlds, their neighborhoods, their families? Do you, do you see themes inside these, these young ladies? Um, I would say that from a positive perspective, sure. the things that or themes that typically come up is um, just that sense of belonging. You know, kids sometimes feel out of place. They trying to fit in to environments and societies that makes it very difficult because us as the leaders, they look at us as the leaders, we don't have it together. So the commonality is that us as the adults, we have to first be that example to our young people. And once they see that, okay, we have it together or we are trying to have it together and create that thriving and healed community, it opens up a sense for them to be able to feel empowered and have like, hey, well, our communities can be healed and our communities can be thriving because the adults are getting it right. That's uh, encouraging to hear for sure that, that, that you're getting that sense. So what are, uh, without being overly specific, because there's a lot of confidentiality here, obviously, but what are some of the things that you're, you're hearing from young women? What are their what are they struggling with? Um, they're struggling with low self-esteem. They're struggling Where does that with, come from? What would you say? Um, honestly, it, it can come from home. Okay. It can come from if us as adults, I, can, I, I always go back to the adults, right? Because we're our first role model for our young people, right? And if our young people are seeing that us, we're body shaming ourselves or we're saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I don't look appropriate or I don't feel appropriate, then unfortunately kids are hearing those things and they're picking up on those and saying, okay, well, maybe I don't feel, 
you know, as pretty as I mm-hmm. think I should be because they're hearing those examples from the home. And then also not just from the home, but also our environments. You know, there's so much that is going on. Our kids have it worse than we do when we were growing up. And it's it's harder for them to adjust because our society is pushing the fact that maybe we don't have to. Social media plays a big part of it, you know, and, and the way that our young girls are, are being are raised. Some people are being raised on social media because that's what they're used to. That's what they're accustomed to. Um, and that we're just trying to break those cycles of mistrust with our within the community as well. Yeah, that, I guess how do you, it's a big question. It's probably one that you try to tackle every day, but how do you go about breaking, like you said, that, that kind of that circle there of sorts, mm-hmm. that cycle uh, that we're, we're kind of describing there? How do, you, how do you go about trying to chisel away at that? Yeah, it's just really reengaging our youth. You know, creating organizations like Confident Girl Mentoring, you know, creating safe spaces for our kids to come to even just talk about their issues, Uh, creating environments that, you know, kids see that diversity is not just one way. We're not just looking at um, inequities. We're looking at equality. You know, how can we actually pull those things together to help our young people be in a more equitable space? Um, you know, a more thriving space, a more healed space. It all goes back to safety. It all goes back to education, creating and and also um, providing the resources for organizations like Confident Girl Mentoring to be able to help our future leaders, you know, be the best that they can be um, with unlimited resources. So that's another thing, too, is pouring into organizations that are really doing the critical work. Um, in our community to bring up and raise awareness for our young people. You said safety, you making safety. them safety. Uh, is that a, a, a common theme? Is that something that these are, the kids just don't feel safe? Kids don't feel safe. Um, I can't speak for all kids. Sure. Because, and I can't say that all homes are broken because they're not. Have some wonderful, loving homes. But some of the kids that I encounter don't come from those spaces. And a lot of our kids, they come to after-school programs because they want to feel safe, because they need a meal, you know. And I'm not saying that that's everywhere across the board. I'm just talking about some of the kids that I engage with. There are some amazing young people in the organization who are now peer mentors for the younger kids. And there are some amazing young girls that have a heightened sense of self-confidence and self-worth that are, uh, that provide resources even to myself. And it just also helps me heal, you know, and I just love those kids. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know that, that maybe you're turning the corner with a, with a young lady that, uh, like you said, she showed up and she didn't feel safe and she was dealing with some trauma and how do you know that you're you're maybe seeing, uh, you know, the uh, the light not at the end of the tunnel, but maybe a light to go follow? Uh, when kids are asking to uh, 
engage in programs. Like mm-hmm. when they're saying, can I lead the program today? Or can I be in the middle for our, at the end of our Confident Girls Circle? Or, you know, how about this? And when they start asking questions and when they want to do things, that lets me know that it's working. You know, we often create programs without having our young people in mind. But once we start asking our young people what they want, we get better results and create programs centered around their needs versus what we think they need. Kids will tell you. Kids, excuse me, kids know when, you know, they can trust you and, you know, kids know what they want. It's about listening and engaging with them on their needs. You also have a a couple of tips that you wanted to to share here. Um, Why why don't you go through that a little bit uh, to maybe help some people understand kind of the whole complexity of what you're dealing with when you're trying to mentor these young ladies? Yes. So um, if we can imagine what a healed and thriving community would look like for our young people, um, there are some things that we need to understand on how to create a safe and inclusive um, healing space when kids are faced with trauma. And one thing that I can say is, one, kids feel safer when they're connected to a trusted adult. Um, I don't want to throw that word around loosely. Trusted means trust. Um, Also that... So it may or may not be a parent. It may not be a parent. Um, This young girl that I had encountered over six years ago, she was tall. I was a complete stranger, but she saw something in me that created that trust. She was able to open up. Um, Another thing is create a sense of belonging. Kids want to know and feel like they belong. You know, when we create those type of environments for our young people, then they're easily accessible to opening up more, you know, engaging more in conversation. And three is creating a culture of open communication. So, again, as I said earlier, shifting that conversation from what's wrong to what do you need. That actually gets kids from that fight, flight or fight response. And it lets them know, Okay, wait a minute. They actually are concerned about me. So creating a healing, um, thriving space for our kids our young people really starts with those three things is listening, trying to understand, not listening to respond, but listening to understand um, is another thing. And also um, hope, like hope, like for black and brown girls, there's a lot of talk about confidence, you know, but what about hope? Hope for what, right? Right. Hope for, you know, what we can do and see um, and be seen doing um, hope for the world with all its inequities, injustices, and oppressions. It's really hope for them. Those inequities and oppressions, does that come up in conversation? Does that, uh, is that something that's on the minds of a 12, 13-year-old girl? Yes. Really? <laughs> yes, it is. And What do they say? It's, it's more like, you know, why can't I fit in? You know, mm. why is this happening? You know, why are we targeted? 514 and before 514. From Tiffany Lewis and inspiration to business mentorship now, Jennifer Parker is with WBFO's Dave Debo. You think that the entrepreneurial spirit, the idea of black self-confidence, really springs from, in many cases, the HBCUs. Talk about that. Well, I have to say my spirit came from that because 
attending a historical black college and university in Charlotte, North Carolina, Johnson C. Smith, I was always told I could do it. I, I got to play devil's advocate. If the HBCUs tell black people you can do it, do we look at the other side of the coin and say traditional education tells you maybe you can't? No. What okay. I have found out, Dave, is what's so important. It may even start in a home uh, and seeing, having access to people, places and experiences of people that look like you, whether it's a female, whether it's a white male and you're a white male. I think that really brands something in you. You can, you can model behavior you see, but if you don't see it, it might not occur to you that you can do that. That is so true. Is there a dearth of black, a scarcity of black entrepreneurship? I don't. I think it's on the rise. It's on the rise. When I was growing up in the South, I thought it was everywhere because I grew up in the South in North Carolina at a time where we were at the end of Jim Crow, where everything was segregated. And I only knew of black florists, black grocery stores, uh, black retailers. That's the only thing I saw. And with A&T University being the center of everything, of the black community in Greensboro, North Carolina, that's what I saw. I saw the strength. By no means, obviously, am I advocating for segregation. But that's interesting. You, you're, you're almost suggesting that it created a sense of independence that created a can-do attitude. It it did because it's saying, okay, we're being left out of this, so but we we're going to make have to do ourselves. We have to do ourselves, and but you can take that can-do attitude and find your niche in a integrated community, because everyone can add value, and that's what it's about: adding value and making an impact. That brings me back to the initial question. You say uh, that that black, on, black entrepreneurship right now is on the rise. Yes, it is. Tell me more. In Buffalo specifically? I see it. When I started the Black Capital Network Economic Empowerment Conference that we did from 2003 to 2010, I always believed that the next group of entrepreneurs were sitting in high school classrooms and our colleges. And Buffalo is a college town, whether people want to embrace mm -hmm. it or not. It is a college town. And now what I'm seeing is that there are so many, and research has shown that there are so many African-Americans that want to be entrepreneurs. They want, it's all about creating, filling a niche. The creativity and innovation is on the rise. It's there. It's just exploding. So the great, wonderful idea that someone has to create a business around is there. It's there. But they it's... just need a they need somebody to hold their hand and say, This is the way we go. This is how you build a sustainable business. It can be done. It starts with that vision and that can do attitude to do the work and the research that's needed to make it wonderful. You've gotten ahead of me. I was gonna ask uh, the <laughs> the hand holding, the mentorship, somewhere along the way that also involves a talk about capital. Because a great idea without the money to make it happen, 
is probably not going to happen. What I've seen is that you can't do it solo and attract money. Money comes when you have a team to make that vision come alive. Investors usually don't invest in... Tell me more. This is interesting. Investors won't just throw money at a person with an idea. No. You have to have show how you're going to implement that idea. And usually implementing can't come from one person. It You need a team of people to make it work and become sustainable. And that then brings in the mentorship. Yes. Hey, you've got a great idea. Let me help you develop a business plan. Yes. And a business plan made just like Jeff Bezos wrote his business plan on a napkin. It doesn't have to be a thorough complicated document it can be okay bullet point one i am going to how will i get to producing that idea i have and you reevaluate it every year it's like what worked what didn't work and you keep working those steps i want to though focus in and, and forgive me if this is um rude or inappropriate i want to focus in on race though is it harder for the black entrepreneur I think it is, and for women. Yes, I think it is. I think because of, it goes back to what's in our mind when we grow up. When I was growing up as a little black girl in the South, I saw only white men usually on television in the business. And that's, if you look at the history of the the business people that built America on the History Channel, Mm -hmm. you see men, white males. Because they had access to the dollars. Right. That doesn't mean the females didn't have any ideas or the African-Americans didn't have ideas. They had a network that could would listen to them. And that's what it is. It's the stereotype. Do banks need to do more? Are they uh, stepping up to the plate in the ways they should? I think banks have evolved. I think they have. They're doing what they can. Banks are in the business of building wealth. Okay, and they cannot just give away money to anyone. Right. You really have to come with a sustainable, Here it possible is again. plan. And I want to talk, Jennifer, about how you got there, because I think in every person there is maybe a personal story that can be instructive and illustrative. Well, Dave, that story starts as a little girl growing up in North Carolina in the South during the late 60s and 70s. That was a turbulent time in our country. Mm-hmm. I had aunts that were sh- uh, daughters that were sharecroppers, daughters of sharecroppers. And they all, out of 13 children, those nine girls went to college. And they also, they all, they told us that we had to do the same. So when I went to elementary school, I knew I was going to college. College was seen as the way to advance for African-Americans. And I saw these proud women digging into their education, and they went to historical black colleges. So historical black colleges are very prominent in the South. In North Carolina, have many of them. And I had aunts and cousins that attended historical black colleges, and that was my first choice. But I think when we talk about the South, there's other things we can say are prevalent there, too. 
um, Jim Crow, bad attitudes. Talk about that journey and tell me a little bit, because this is something others have, have shared on the show as well, the difference maybe between the South and Buffalo. Well, that, that down there maybe the racism is overt and here it's still there, but it's more covert. That is what I found. When I was when I moved to Buffalo and attended law school, I had that's the first I shared it with someone else years ago that I when I moved to Buffalo is when I felt that I was different and I was black. I felt the racism very deeply. You felt it here more than in the South? Yes, I did. So wow. maybe I was in a bubble and maybe my parents was protecting me. But, what you know, what's really weird, you know, when they were demanding that all of those Confederate uh, statues be taken down, I never remember seeing those. Mm. Because I had people in my life that would say, we're going to ignore that. You got to keep your eye on the prize. We're Black gonna... history was every day. You talked about this earlier, too, some of the businesses. Uh, you focus on the black florist, uh, florist or or the, the black grocery store. Yes. And you're not going to necessarily notice the Robert E. Lee statue nope. over there. Nope. Wow. No one talked about it. Mm. No one talked about it. So, therefore, when I moved here... I fit I, down in the South. There was like Miss Miss Jackson. That was my maiden name. Miss Jackson is Mr. Jackson is. And I moved here and I would go into a store and catch someone grabbing their purse when they looked at me. And I had a suit on mm. and I couldn't understand that. It was very disturbing. And then as I did, I'm a researcher. I did some research looking at documentaries on PBS with Henry Louis Gates. Talked to Dr. Henry Teller here. And I saw that the difference, there was two migrations of African-Americans to the North. Mm -hmm. The first wave came to get an education and move up the social ladder. The second group came to get a job. And that's a big group that came to Buffalo. And, and what difference does that make? Does I, the one group have different aspirations or different goals than the other? There's a different mindset for entrepreneurship and building a career or a job. There is a different mindset. And it's not that it's wrong, but there's a different mindset. One that, came here to execute an idea. Yes. Or to find the dream, as it were. Find the dream. The, the American other, dream. The other came here just to find a job and work for someone? And to to build up their go build up the economic wealth. ladder. Generational wealth that Generational, was not available. That wasn't available in the Jim Crow. It wasn't permitted. Now, bring it full circle for me. How do those two different types of migration affect the idea that, that we are perhaps more racist in the North than you experienced in the South? Well, what, it, what I wouldn't say, it, it, I, it may be not racist, but it could be you didn't understand the full story, the cultural story. The South said, you know what? You have this Jim Crow, you're beating us down, but we wanna, we're going to continue to rise. We're going to stand. That ugly elephant was not dealt with in the North. The North was always supposed to be the place of freedom, security, but... We didn't deal with the elephant because, heck, there are no elephants. The elephant was ignored. It was ignored. And then bring it full circle for me. Full 514. Cir for, oh, my gosh. 
I just get chills when I think about that because it was it impacted our elderly community. It impacted the entire Buffalo community. I was really inspired by seeing how the community came together. The city of good neighbors was really the city of good neighbors. Mm. But it's a great opportunity to have those real conversations. Business consultant Jennifer Parker ends today's program for us. If you like what you've heard, we have more for you. Buffalo What's Next is a podcast. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We are also on the WBFO and NPR One apps. And if you don't catch the show each weekday morning at 10, you can always catch up with the nightly rebroadcast at 9 on WBFO. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for listening.